Well, it is, a, it is a privilege and an honour to be asked to speak. Thanks, Tim, for uh, offering that to me. And uh, I, I might be getting the gig. I, I've got the pre-Easter sermon last time. Now I've got the post-Christmas <laughs> message. I'm not quite sure what will happen next time. But uh, I trust that the words I speak today will be words that God wants you to hear, that uh, they're things that he's been laying on my heart, and I hope that that resonates with what he's been laying on your heart as well. But I want to start with a bit of a Christmas parody. I am, I am a bit of a fan of humour. Anyone who knows me knows that my favourite movies are all sort of comedy movies. It's my way of unwinding. And in my former life as a youth pastor, uh, one of the things that I did, we had an annual camp and we would have a talent night. And I would write a parody of a current contemporary song and put Christian words to it and get up and sing. I'm not, I'm not going to do that for you today. <laughs> I've borrowed someone else's parody from Luke chapter 2, so let's, uh, I'll just read that out to you. And it came to pass in those days that there was sent out a decree from the federal treasurer that all of Australia should go shopping. <laughs> the decree was first made when leading economic indicators dipped to their lowest point. All went out to shop, each to his own shopping mall. And a Christian also went up from his suburban home to the mall with its many shops, because he wanted to prove that he was also from the household of prosperity. And with him was his wife, who was, with, who was great with economic worry. And so it was while they were there that they found many expensive presents, and the woman paid for those that they could afford, and then she charged the rest on many different plastic cards. <laughs> she wrapped the presents in bright paper and laid them in the garage, for there was no room for them in the bedroom. There were in that same country children watching over their stockings by night, and lo, Father Christmas came upon them, sorry, Father Christmas came upon them, and they were very afraid because they were expecting to see all the special effects that they see at the pictures. And Father Christmas said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people who can afford this holiday. For unto you will be given this day in your suburban home great feasts of turkey and Christmas pudding, and cake, and many presents. And this shall be a sign to you. You shall find the presents wrapped in bright paper, lying beneath the Christmas tree, which is decorated with tinsel, coloured balls, and lights. And suddenly there was with Father Christmas a multitude of relatives and friends, praising one another and saying, Glory to you for getting me this gift. It's just what I wanted. And it came to pass, as the relatives went back to their homes, the parents said to one another, I'm glad it's all over. What a mess. I'm too tired to clean up. Let's go to bed and deal with it tomorrow. And when they said this, they remembered the things that had been told them by the shopkeepers. Christmas comes but once a year. And they wondered at those things that were sold to them by the shopkeepers. But the children treasured all their things in their hearts, hoarding their toys from each other. And the parents, after a drink, went to bed, glorifying and praising each other for all the bargains that they had found in the shopping mall. That was entitled, Joy to the Mall. Well, why is it then, when we have plenty, that often we're still not satisfied? And that even after we get more, even after we get that present that we so wanted, that after a little time, we're still discontented, we're still not satisfied. My message today is called 
the secret to being satisfied. And I'm not sure about you, but I have a yearning for a more settled, a more simple, a more contented life. I'm tired of chasing after the next new thing that will bring the promised satisfaction and contentedness that I'm searching for. And I don't think I'm alone. There's many uh, current commentators on Western society that would say that the current, the main issue within our society, within Western society, is discontent. And people are experiencing this life of discontent along with anxiety, depression, lack of purpose that come with that. But they're trying to fill that discontent with things. And I think as Christians, we can be easily tempted and lured into that same pathway of trying to fill the discontent, the dissatisfaction in our life with things. Because people, if we observe, are on a quest for the better and the next. And maybe I know for myself that this message is really a message that God's been laying on my heart and something that I've been aware of in my life. On a quest for the better and the next, the better job with better pay, maybe a better boss. We want better relationships, a newer car, a better backhand in tennis or a longer drive in golf. And we live for the next, the next thing, the next weekend, the next vacation, the next purchase, the next experience. We're never satisfied, never content, and we're envious of those who have what we have not attained or accumulated. And I think that this is also exemplified by social media. Because we just look at our Facebook feed and we see all the good things that are happening in everyone else's life. And it immediately brings dissatisfaction and discontent with our life. We don't take a moment to think that what we're seeing is like the 1% of really good things that are happening in 10% <laughs> of our friends' lives. And that's what we see in our feed, right? We don't see the 99% of regular stuff that we go through as well. So I think we have to be aware of how much social media is feeding this appetite of discontent or this appetite of dissatisfaction. And so if humanity is marked by this inextinguishable discontent, how do we find contentment? What is the secret to being satisfied? And it's not, the secret is not a book called The Secret, you know, where you just think positively about things and they will appear for you. I don't, that's sort of a bit of throwback to about 10 years ago, if anyone remembers that book called The Secret. I'm telling you that God doesn't work in secrets like that. He actually makes it very clear in his scripture um, how it is that we gain this contentment in life. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 6 to 10, Paul's letter to Timothy. If you've got your Bibles, open it up. Um, but it's also on the slides if we move forward. Um, I'll read from... Verse Timothy 6, verses 6 to 10. Yet true godliness with contentment is itself great wealth. After all, we brought nothing with us when we came into the world and we can't take anything with us when we leave it. So if we have enough food and clothing, let us be content. But people who long to be rich fall into temptation and are trapped by many foolish and harmful desires that plunge them into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, and some people craving money have wandered from the true faith and pierced themselves with many sorrows. 
We're going to go through this. There's three points that I want to make that relate to this um, passage of scripture from 1 Timothy chapter 6 about the secret of dissatisfaction. And the first is invest in what you cannot see. Verses 6 to 7 say, Godliness with contentment is itself great wealth. In other words, the wealth that we should be seeking for is not money or possessions, but it's godliness with contentment. That is what real wealth is. After all, we brought nothing with us when we came into the world and we can't take anything with us when we leave it. And this echoes the words from Ecclesiastes, verses five, chapter 5, verse 15 says, We all come to the end of our lives as naked and empty-handed as the day we were born. We can't take our riches with us. So the danger, and each of the three points I'm going to talk about a danger and then an opposite uh, attitude that we can take on. The danger is that we invest in earthly wealth instead of heavenly wealth. We build up earthly possessions that ultimately do not satisfy. Jesus talked about this. Actually, he talked about money and possessions a lot. <laughs> but one of his parables, he says in Luke chapter 12, verse 15, Beware, guard yourself against every kind of greed. Life is not measured by how much you own. And then he told them a story. A rich man had a fertile farm that produced fine crops. And he said to himself, what should I do? I don't have any room for all my crops. And then he said to himself, I know, I'll tear down my barns and I'll build bigger ones. And then I'll have room to store all the wheat and all my other goods. And I'll sit back and I'll say to myself, my friend, you have enough stored away for many years to come. Now take it easy. Eat, drink and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, you will die this very night. Then who will get everything that you work for? Yes, a person is a fool to store up earthly wealth but not have a rich relationship with God. So we can seek to build this, meet this satisfaction, this need for satisfaction by accumulating things. But ultimately that's not the purpose of life. The purpose of life is not to accumulate but it's to become rich in our relationship with God. Have a rich relationship with God. So we need to watch that we do not become obsessed with our possessions. We have to watch that the things that we own don't end up owning us. So if the danger is investing in earthly wealth, then what's the remedy? I'm suggesting the remedy is to adopt an attitude of generosity. Rather than holding tightly to the things that we own, Let's think about how we can give away the excess that we have. I've been reading a book uh, recently called The More of Less, and it comes from, I can't remember, I'll talk about it at the end of the, I'll see the slide, the guy, is a pastor from the US, but he basically started, he was sort of really challenged by the amount of stuff that he had, and he, he was on his summer thing, I don't know if you guys do this, but we do it in our house, of cleaning out the garage, getting rid of all that stuff, it's like the spring clean. And he said, why have, I, why have I got all this stuff? So he actually started on a journey of de-accumulating and giving away stuff. Um, and he started just a personal blog um, that became into a bit of a movement, really, and he got asked to speak at different places and he ended up writing a book about it, which I'll recommend at the end of my message. And, uh, and what he, he realised was that, that he was, you know, this 
all the stuff that he had took so much time out of his life that when he got less, he actually had more time to do the things that he really wanted to do, spend time with family, spend time with God. And so I think adopting the attitude of generosity and thinking about how we can give away the excess that we have is a good place to start. The picture up on your screen is the picture of one of my favourite books because, again, it's a little bit of a parody of life. But who's read this book? The Sacred Diary of Adrian Plass, aged 37 and three quarters. If you haven't, great summer read, right? It's about it's a story of, of Adrian, his wife Anne and his son Gerald and it's his attempt to live a good Christian life. Like It's basically his diary of how he's living his life and how he's trying to be the best person he can be for God. If you want a good laugh over the next couple of weeks, get it on your Kindle or your Kobo or buy it on hard copy or whatever. I'm going to read an excerpt about Adrian Plass's journey into giving generously. Wednesday, February 19, from his diary. Felt led during my quiet time this morning to give poor, old, poor quaint old Mr Brain, our ex-actor neighbour, a little financial gift. I remembered that verse in the Bible about giving secretly. I didn't even tell Anne what I was doing. I popped it through his letterbox in a plain envelope when I got home from work. I hung around for a bit, hoping he'd spot me through the window. <laughs> the next day, Thursday, February the 20th, I felt a glow all day at work, thinking of Mr Brain's pleasure at receiving the gift. What a joy and privilege it is to give. Friday, February the 21st, two days later, I came home from work tonight to find a note on the mat addressed to me. Dear Mr Plass, in the remote past, you took possession of my excellent mechanical hedge trimmer. You described the transaction as a loan. Possibly the terms loan and theft are synonymous in your vocabulary. <laughs> if not, perhaps you would return my property. Otherwise, I must invite you to explain your verbal idiosyncrasies to my solicitors, from whom you will shortly hear, from your frail elderly victim, Percival, Percival X. Brain. I showed it to Anne. She said, what a scream. He's a real character, isn't he? <laughs> I said, yes, Anne, he's a real character. I took the blasted trimmer around to the silly old fool. <laughs> when he came to the door, I said, anything good happened to you this week, Mr Brain? Brain said, the Lord has provided, young man, through some soul whose nature it is to give rather than to take. A lesson for you, Plass, a lesson... <laughs> He, he wagged his finger at me. I nearly trimmed it off. <laughs> I went home and sulked for an hour. Saturday, February 22nd. Secret giving is hard. At that moment, I felt like strangling Brain and telling him about the money just before he dies. Fine Christian I am. I asked God to make me a better person. No noticeable improvement by the evening. So there can't be a God after all, can there? 1.30am. I didn't mean that last bit. Just being flippant. Of course there is. Two months later, reading. 2,000 things you need to know about living the victorious Christian life. I read the section on giving and I realised that my motives were wrong. Paragraph 1,416 says, Give cheerfully without thought of reward or your own inconvenience. I explained this to Anne and Gerald at breakfast and Gerald said, can I have your bacon then? <laughs> anyway, giving generously, it's not always easy. 
But that's what we're called to do. There's um, something that John Wesley said about giving that has sort of stuck with me throughout my life and it's something that I'll always come back to. His teaching on giving was basically earn all you can, save all you can and give all you can. So when he talks about earning all you can, what he's saying is be diligent, don't be lazy, work hard, use your earning capacity to earn money. And we'll talk about this later. Paul, Paul never says that it's wrong to have money. It's not wrong to gain money. But our attitude towards that money and how we use that money is the issue. And so Wesley would say, work hard. Don't be lazy. Earn, earn as much money as you can. Use your earning capacity to its greatest benefit. Secondly, save all you can. Be frugal. Be smart. Think about how you spend your money. Think about that next purchase and ask yourself, do you really need it? So save hard, be frugal, be thoughtful, all for this purpose. Earn all you can, save all you can, so you can give all you can. So you're in a position where you can help others, you can support others. And, and it's not like Wesley said these words and didn't actually live it. There's one thing uh, reading through uh, John Wesley's journal is that... Um, now, he would lived in the days when there wasn't really inflation like we have today. But he got to the point where he realised how much he needed to live on throughout a 12-month period. And he lived on that same amount his whole life. Even though some years he earned 10, towards the end of his life, when he had a lot of books and pamphlets that he published and sold, he probably earned 100 times more than he needed. He gave it all away. And he died with only owning basically his clothes and a few possessions and a few coins in his pocket. That's how he lived. He worked out how much he needed to live. He still worked hard. He still saved hard, but he gave away the rest to those who were in need. And he's a great example. He's certainly been a great example to me, and I think it's a great example for us on how we think about giving generously. So the test of our love for our possessions is how we feel when we give something away or how we feel about an item when it's taken away from us. And this can be very difficult because so many of us determine our self-worth and our value by what we own. We live in a status-driven society where what we wear, what we drive, where we live, how we holiday, all of those things, people put their value in them, people put their worth in those things. But scripture is very clear that our worth is not found in any of those things. It's found in God. And so later in the chapter, in uh, 1 Timothy chapter 6, Paul says, to those who are rich, to those who have money, and really, honestly, to everyone here, we are rich. <laughs> Compared to the world, everyone in this room is rich. Use your money to do good. Be rich in good works and generous to those in need, always being ready to share with others. By doing this, they will be storing up their treasure as a good foundation for the future that they may experience true life. So that's the first secret. Invest in what you cannot see. Secret two, learn to be content and free. So I'm trying to get a little rhyming thing happening here if you haven't noticed. Invest in what you cannot see. Learn to be content and free. Verses eight and nine. So if we have enough food and clothing, let us be content. But people who long to be rich 
fall into temptation and are trapped by many foolish and harmful desires that plunge them into ruin and destruction. So what's the danger here? The danger is longing to be rich. Paul warns against the desire to be rich, not necessarily being rich itself. He's warning against the craving and longing for more that includes sins such as greed and coveting. And these sins apply to rich and poor alike. Some people that I've read on this whole topic of simplicity and giving and those sorts of things talk about the fact that actually the, the sin of greed and covetousness is actually more of an issue for those who are poor than those who are rich because they actually it's the desire to want more than what you have. But it's still true for rich as well. Coveting is that compulsion to possess. It's not the mere act of admiring something. It's nice to admire nice things and beautiful things. But it's, a, it's the difference between saying, I like that, to I want to own that. I have to have that. And we think that we'll be satisfied and we'll be happy if only. If only I had that extra $100 a week. If only I had a house with a little bit more space. If only I could get lucky and win that raffle. We live the life of the if only, right? The if only will give us that contentment. That if only thing will bring us satisfaction. But when we get that if only thing, we find that we're still empty. Because that if only thing is not the right thing. A man came to speak to his village, village priest one day and said, Life is unbearable for our family. We've got nine people crammed into a one-room home. Can you help us out? Can you give us a way that we can live a better life? And the priest's response was, it sort of confused the guy. The priest said, take your goat from outside and bring it into the house with you and then come back to me in a week. So the man walked away, confused, but a week later, he came back to the priest looking more distraught than ever. He said, we can't stand it. That goat is filthy. It smells and it takes up room that we don't have. And the priest said to him, go home, take the goat back outside and then come back and see me in a week. And a week later, the man returned, radiant, exclaiming, life is beautiful. We enjoy every minute of it now that there's no goat and only the nine of us in that one room. <laughs> our contentment is more of a matter of our perspective on life than our circumstances in life, isn't it? It's more about the attitude that we have to the things that God has given us. This compulsion to want more, to have more, to accumulate, to get the better or the next or the newer version... It's a temptation that is fed by advertising and marketing. These people are clever, you know? You start searching for something on the internet and the next moment there's a little ad on your Facebook for something very similar. Who's noticed this, this thing that's happening more and more and more? Marketers and advertisers are very clever at getting you to think that you want something that you don't really need. Right? That's their job. And they get paid a lot of money to do it and they get... And the world, the economy runs on that marketing and advertising and we're getting sucked into it. 
So if the danger is longing to be rich, then the attitude that we've got to adopt is contentment. Contentment is the state of being satisfied with what we have. And Paul knew what it was to be content. In Philippians 4, 11 to 13, he said, I've learned how to be content with whatever I have. I know how to live on almost nothing or with everything. I've learned the secret of living in every situation, whether it's with a full stomach or empty, with plenty or little, for I can do everything through Christ who gives me strength. This is the secret. The secret is contentment. To be satisfied with little or a lot. With living in every situation. The person who keeps busy helping the person below them won't have time to envy the person above them. I think that's a great quote. If our attitude is being content with what we have and is serving those around us, then we won't be thinking of what we're missing out on in other people. Contentment brings happiness and freedom because it enables us to have perspective no matter what situation we find ourselves in. Our trust is in God, not in the things that we have or the things that we want. But I think a warning here, contentment's not laziness. It's not, I'm content, I don't need to do anything, <laughs> I don't want anything more. I, don't. It's, I think we have to come back to Wesley's, Wesley's message for us is that we have to earn all we can. We have to work hard. We can't be lazy. So contentment is not laziness. It's not sort of just kicking back and eat, drink and be merry like that parable from, uh, that Jesus told. It's still, we still have to stay focused. A lack of contentment causes us to look horizontally at what others have and we'll never be satisfied. No, we'll never be satisfied if we're just looking and comparing ourselves with other people. But contentment invites us to look vertically at God. And when we look in his direction, regardless of our possessions, regardless of our status, we know that he is enough. He is enough and we can be content in that. So invest in what you cannot see, learn to be content and free, and I might have pushed the rhyming a little bit here, but stay true to God's foremost decree, right, is our third point. <laughs> stay true to God's foremost decree. Verse 10, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. So some people eager for money, not eager for God, have wandered from the faith. So the danger is loving money. Money itself is not evil. Like many things in this world, it can be used for good or evil. But Paul says that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. This is echoed in Jesus' words in Matthew 6. No one can serve two masters. You will hate one and love the other, or you will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. That is why I tell you not to worry about everyday life, whether you'll have enough food and drink or clothes enough to wear. Isn't life more than food and your body more than clothing? Isn't life more than food and your body more than clothing? Do not worry about everyday life. Now, it's not saying don't worry about how you're going to feed your family and there's a roof over your head, but... I think what Jesus is talking about is that sometimes when we love money, all we're thinking about is money. All we're thinking about is our next purchase and planning that next purchase or planning that next holiday. Now, I don't know if this is just me justifying myself. I hope it's not. But there's sort of a fine line between 
spending enough time planning a purchase so that you don't waste money, right, as against spending time planning a purchase that you don't really need, which is really wasting time. Are you getting my point? Because I think there's a point in which when we're saving all we can, I think there's some value in actually spending some time to think through, do we really need this? Is this going to help us in life? What's the best option for me? How, is it, how am I going to get the best deal? How is it going to last a long time? Because often our spending is more impulsive. We see it, it's marketed, it's in the catalogue that we get in our letterbox or it's something that we see online, our subscription feed. I don't know if you, your Gmail is separated into your normal inbox and then your social and then you... My subscription one, it's just like... It's just like all these advertisers putting stuff in that I want to buy. But I think loving money, it's not about being considerate about what you spend, but it's about when you're just thinking about what you're going to spend all the time. We place importance on it, we spend time thinking about it. Money determines our actions, it rules our decision-making, it takes our attention. That's when we know that we're loving money and not loving God. Ecclesiastes 5.10 Those who love money will never have enough. Maybe I could have just said that, like that one line, and walked away and that would have been enough. Those who love money will never have enough. How meaningless to think that wealth brings true happiness. So if the danger is loving money, what's the attitude that we have to adopt? I think we have to adopt an attitude of trust in God, not trusting money to bring satisfaction, but to trust God. 1 Timothy 6.17 Teach those who are rich in this world not to be proud and not to trust in their money, which is so unreliable. Their trust should be in God who richly gives us all we need for our enjoyment. We can have money without loving money. It's our attitude towards money and possessions and the importance that we place on them that's the real issue. We must not fix our hope on the if-onlys. We have to fix our hope on God. Hebrews 13.5 Don't love money. Be satisfied with what you have. For God has said, I will never fail you, I will never abandon you. We have good reason to put our trust in God because he promises to be with us. He promises to give us that contentment that we need. He promises to be enough. So do you treasure your possessions more than you treasure your relationship with God? How do you feel about giving things away or losing something that you own? Let's wrap up going back over a few of these points. We need to know the dangers of money and possessions so that we can avoid these dangers. Possessions don't last. They are a happiness mirage. <laughs> it's out there. You want it. You get it. It's gone. Possessions are a happiness mirage. We think our next purchase will satisfy, but it never does because the underlying desire within us is not satisfied. <laughs> We're not dealing with the root problem. We need to adopt an attitude of giving rather than getting, of contentment rather than desire, and trust in God to the exclusion of anything else. The covetous person dreams of taking. The contented person dreams of sharing. The covetous person clutches all they have with a tight fist. The contented person holds what they have with open hands and reaches out to embrace others.
My three points in a different way. Give away what you don't need. Learn to be content in any circumstance. Love God. Invest in what you cannot see. Learn to be content in free. Stay true to God's foremost decree. Lastly, it's the season of reading, isn't it? Well, it is in our family anyway. <laughs> if, I, if I can make a couple of recommendations of things that I'm reading at the moment, that are sort of, it's sort of not on contentment, but it's about simplicity and simplifying life and decluttering and getting focused. Freedom of Simplicity, it's a classic by Richard Foster. Actually, anything by Richard Foster I would recommend around the spiritual disciplines, but this is particularly on simplicity. And then the book I referred to, The More of Less, by Josh, Pastor Josh Becker. Um, uh, the More of Less, it's really just his story. It's, it's very autobiographical. It's an easy read. Um, and he also has a blog if you want to check online and, and find Josh Becker's blog. Um, but just a bit of encouragement if you're wanting to read a bit more in this area. Well, let's pray together as we conclude and as the band comes up and sings our final song. Let's, let's turn our hearts towards God. We thank you, God, for your word. We thank you for the reminder to stay focused, and particularly at the end of a year and the beginning of a new year when we're setting our life's priorities, when we're taking stock of the values and the things that are really important for us. I pray that the words that have been spoken today, that your scriptures that have been read will sunk deep into the hearts of the people here and that your message will be the message that, that they take away, that, that you will really... Speak to each of us, myself included, about how we apply these principles into our particular circumstances. How do we take this theory and make it applicable into our life on an everyday basis? And I pray that you would help us to do that, to think and ponder over these things over the next week and over the next year. Amen. Amen.